Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, which chronicles my life after alcohol for the past six and a half years, and um, I tell my story there. And then I invite you to share your stories here. And I get a lot of feedback from you. And one thing a lot of you have been saying is that you would love to hear from someone who's earlier on in their recovery. And the universe works in funny ways because not long after I got a couple of those requests, I got a beautiful email from a listener named Jessica who uh, is just past the three-month mark and was willing to come on and share her story. And Jessica was really nervous that she's too early in recovery to have anything meaningful to say or that her story is boring or a thousand different silly things that she's worried about. But um, I think it's like one of the best times to hear someone's story because that's really in the heart of some of the hardest, most important you know, baseline work that we do. And so I'm really excited uh, to uh, be able to talk to Jessica at this stage in her early recovery. So Jessica joins us from Colorado. Hello, Jessica. Hi, Jean. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. I I know that this is um, not an easy thing to do and you're in a really vulnerable time. And so your willingness to share just means so much to me right now because I know I know it's hard and um, I also know you have a great big heart and you know that you're helping people so thank you for your willingness to be here yeah thank you I am so afraid and wanted to cancel multiple times (laughs) Um, but I I really kept thinking about how I really kept trying to find that person that had my story and Um, I really benefited from hearing um, other people's stories. And so if I could, if I could, you know, be that person for somebody else, I was willing to to show up. And it's also a great opportunity for me to get to, you know, speak my truth and own own my story more. So Mm -hmm. I'm really honored to be here. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you are. And it's not scary, I promise. The next 60 minutes are going to fly by. And okay. um, and uh, a lot of good will come of it. And um, so uh, let's, without, you know, without any further ado, I'm going to just start by inviting you to share your story. And I know that you um, are willing to get really vulnerable. And so you have written out your story and you're going to read it um, because mm-hmm. that sort of is is a way to help you go a little bit deeper than what you might do just talking off the cuff. Um, so I invite you to do that now and just know that um, we're all hearing you with with gratitude and an open heart and um, mm. and a lot of love. Thank you. So I mentioned that I. Yeah, that I did write out my story, and that experience was really eye-opening for me and actually a lot harder than I expected it to be. And so I went back to one of my heroes, Brene Brown, and I found this quote by her that I blew up on my computer and put it right on the front so that as soon as I opened my story and started working on it, I saw it. And it says, owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. 
Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experiences that make us the most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. And that really inspired me to just find my truth and own it and and share it today. So thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm just gonna dive right in. As a very little child, I felt scared and different and really, really not okay. Everyone around me seemed to be able to laugh and smile and have friends and do normal kid things like it was easy for them. Nothing about living felt easy and normal to me, even as a little girl. When I was six, my mom was diagnosed with a severe mental illness that caused her to have to be psychiatrically hospitalized eight times in five years. And during those times, my two younger brothers and I would be placed into foster care. I never knew where I was going to be, who I was going to be with, if my mom was going to be okay, and making sure that everyone was okay became what I thought was my primary responsibility. No one told me that this was my job. I just took it on and felt like I needed to take care of everyone else. When I was 11, things became more stable and secure at home, but as my mom was in her own healing, she became very, very angry and most of that anger was directed at me. There were years of verbal abuse and feeling not good enough, and it felt like everything I did was never enough. For someone who thought it was her job to take care of everyone and make everyone safe and happy, this was devastating. By the time I was a teenager, I was swallowed up by severe depression and anxiety, and I grew up in a very conservative Christian home, and it was taught to me that we didn't drink and didn't get drunk and that doing so was a very big sin. So drinking was never an option at that time, but I found food, and I found that I could just not eat or I could eat and throw up. And by becoming obsessed with food and weight and my body, I didn't have to think about all the other things that were going on around me. I didn't have to feel the feelings of not fitting in, of not being able to fix my family, of constantly not being good enough. Eating disorders became my rescuer. It also allowed me to feel taken care of by others, which was not something that I felt like I got in my family. It was like wrapping a soft blanket of security and protection around me until it stopped making me feel better and it became something that I had no control over anymore. I felt completely out of control and even more miserable because somehow I'd created this other thing that I couldn't do good enough and I couldn't stop doing either. I started going to therapy and I was really, really lucky to find two amazing therapists that saved my life on multiple occasions. I did a ton of trauma work and learning that I really was okay and lovable. They completely changed my life and helped me find my way back to myself. Um, But when I really started recovering from the eating disorder, I found alcohol. I was 22 when I had my first drink. It was with my dad. I was staying with him for the weekend while I attended a conference on recovering from sexual abuse. That's another part of my story, Um, and this was a conference that um, I went to for my own personal healing, Um, and as you can imagine, this brought up a lot of feelings and unresolved stuff for me around my trauma, 
But my dad didn't know about this part of my history, and we didn't have the kind of family where it was okay to tell him that I was really hurting. I knew I had to go back to his apartment after this conference and smile and pretend that everything was fine, and I knew that I couldn't do it. So I asked him to take me out for my first drink, and I had never had alcohol before this, but I instinctually knew that it would make me feel better, and it did. Halfway through that first drink, I felt like I could breathe again. I felt like it wasn't as hard for me to smile and fake that everything was okay. I had found this way to make my outsides not match my insides, and my insides were scary and not okay. I only had one drink that night, and my drinking really started out as very moderate and normal. But given that I was receiving all of these messages about how sinful it was to drink, when I did open that door, it felt like this whole playground was opened up to me, and I wanted it all. Whenever I drank with friends, I always wanted to figure out how to drink the most without anyone else noticing. So if we were sharing a bottle of wine, I needed to have the most wine but make it look like I was having the same as everyone else. Even in the really early days, drinking was complicated. Then I started binge drinking when I go out with my friends. I also learned that if I drank, it was so much easier for me to eat, which at that time was still really stressful. But my friends and roommates started making comments about how they didn't like to go out with me because they felt like if we were drinking, they'd have to take care of me. I thought that was their problem, not mine. It was the drinking that allowed me to be able to be comfortable enough to go out with them in the first place. It was also around this time that I started making my making rules around my drinking. One of the biggest was that only alcoholics pass out in the clothes that they wore during the day. So I'd go home from work at 5, and I'd change into my pajamas just in case I passed out, so I'd still look normal like I was just going to sleep. I also had a rule that if I was going out drinking, I'd have to have a water between drinks, but I didn't want to drink the water because I didn't want to sober up. Fast forward to my early, my, I went to grad school in my mid-30s, and the school I went to was a typical college town party school. Drinking a lot was completely normal. Getting drunk on Taco Tuesday was, being hungover in class was something that we laughed about. Also, being in my mid-30s in a college town of 18 to 22-year-olds gave me that very familiar feeling of being different from everyone else not fitting in, and being somehow wrong. The same feelings I felt as a little girl and really all through my life. But the whole drinking to make my outsides not match my insides was still working. I was able to go to parties and talk to boys and look confident, and somehow just holding the drink in my hand had the power to change who I was. But who I really was was someone who was hurting and so lonely and anxious and feeling like I just didn't have the same things that other people had that made them just be able to live. I didn't understand how people just lived. This is where another problem started getting much worse. In junior high, my best friend used to twirl her hair around her fingers all the time. I started mimicking her to tease her about it, and it just stuck. I started twirling my hair all the time. Then that moved to wrapping my hair around my finger and then rubbing it over my lips. I did it so unconsciously that I wasn't even aware of it, but people started noticing and making fun of me for it. 
I was terribly bullied by a few of my coworkers in my early 20s. They were brutal to me about the hair twirling, and I learned um, that what I was doing was shameful and something to hide. At this point, the twirling and running the hair against my lips escalated to knotting my hair and then ripping the knots out. The best way I can describe it is creating a little knot or mat in the middle of your hair and then ripping the knot out the way that you get gum out of your hair. And then I would take that ripped knot of hair and run it over my lips over and over again. It was a very soothing thing, and it really helped control my anxiety. But again, this was gross and embarrassing and created shame. It's just something I started talking about with people three weeks ago, so it's hard to even share this here. When I was in grad school, I was really struggling with anxiety and feeling different and wrong, and the hair pulling really escalated. It got so bad that the the hair on the left side of my head was significantly shorter than the right side. I was afraid to go to a hairdresser because I was so embarrassed and didn't want to have to explain it. I researched trichotillomania, but because I didn't pull my hair out in the typical way from the scalp, I felt like maybe I didn't have it and maybe I was just crazy and weird. By this time, I'd been through years and years of therapy. I'd recovered from my eating disorder. I dealt with my trauma, but I still wasn't able to be okay. And that added extra shame because I felt like I should just be able to be okay. And in all honesty, I had major codependent issues with my family that if they were not okay, I didn't feel like I could be okay either. My drinking progressed to drinking almost every day. It wasn't huge amounts. I just felt like I needed enough to make me feel okay, enough to be able to breathe, to turn my head off, to turn the anxiety off. I just wanted that tipsy, relaxed, happy feeling. But no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't stay at the tipsy place. I wanted to maintain the buzz so I'd always have that just one more drink and that would turn into getting wasted. I still had rules and things I tried to keep myself under control. I switched from hard liquor to only beer and wine, no drinking before five and then no drinking until noon, no drinking alone just with other people, only drinking on the weekends, only having two drinks. And I could maintain all of this for a little while but I'd always go back to what was normal for me, normal for me. I was a few weeks from graduating. It was a Tuesday night, and my roommate agreed to meet me at this swanky bar in town. It was where the real adults went to drink. I was drinking on an empty stomach, which was something I did normally. I'd rather drink than eat, and I got hammered. My roommate left to meet her boyfriend, and I think I had the one more drink, And I remember barely being able to walk out of that bar. You know those moments where you're so drunk, but you're trying your damnedest to act sober? I should have called a cab or a friend, but I said it's Tuesday. There are no cops out on Tuesdays, and it's only five, and it's only two miles from home. I stood on the sidewalk, and I struggled to get my key in the car door lock, and I drove home. Nothing happened, thank God. I didn't kill anyone. I didn't get a DUI, but I scared myself. It wasn't the first time I drove drunk at all, but for some reason, this was what got me. There were a million little things that happened before this, comments from friends, making a fool of myself in public, falling down, tripping over hot dog stands, 
being 35 years old and finding myself at a freshman frat party, making out with random strangers, being so sick and hungover so many times, friends not inviting me over anymore. All of these things went against my personal values, and yet I ended up doing them over and over and over again. But this night was the thing that got me. I knew driving in that capacity was not right, and I knew what could have happened, and I scared myself. I told my roommate the next day I thought I had a problem with alcohol. She said, no, I drink more than you do. I told a friend that went to 12-step meetings that she told me, and she told me that what I drank was nothing compared to what she would drink before she quit. I talked to one of the professors at my grad school, and because she knew me to always show up for class on time and get A's, she said I was probably drinking more than I should, but I probably didn't have a problem. And I figured if it wasn't a problem, I could keep drinking. I became obsessed with watching Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew and watched five seasons in three days. And I decided to go a week without drinking. It was my experiment to see if I had a problem. It was terrible and uncomfortable and I hated it. And I had thoughts of licking the inside of my roommate's empty wine bottles because sticking my tongue in an empty wine bottle wouldn't be the same as drinking. I went six days and decided if I could go six days, I clearly didn't have a problem, and I might as well drink now, and it was back to the same old thing, stumbling home from bars where I sometimes went by myself to drink and somehow making it to my bed without breaking too much in my house. Nine days after the driving incident, I went to my first 12-step meeting. I was terrified. I had fears of what if I ran into someone I knew, what if someone saw me, What if they told me I didn't belong? What if they told me I did belong? I sat down next to this big burly man in a red flannel shirt crocheting a potholder. And I thought, (laughs) what the hell am I doing here? That man later became a really good friend of mine. They started the meeting and I started sobbing uncontrollably. I was mortified. Someone had to go get a roll of toilet paper from the bathroom because I was crying so hard. Two women took me out for coffee afterwards and told me about the program, and we talked about my story, and they were so accepting. They weren't shocked or judgmental by what I was telling them. They said, me too, and they nodded their heads, and they wanted to be my friend. Finally, I didn't feel different, and I was allowed to say how I really felt on the inside instead of needing to make my outsides not match my insides. Even so, I wasn't going down without a fight. I still really wanted to drink. I was creating all these feelings of intense shame, but it was also my way of checking out from all the feelings too. In a strange way, drinking felt like self-care. It allowed me to not have to feel and or think, and feelings felt too hard, too big. I couldn't say or believe that I was an alcoholic. I had so many long and frustrating conversations with people about this, um, but I always questioned it. I didn't have a DUI. I never blacked out at that point. I didn't really think I did a good enough job trying to moderate to determine if I could do that. I was drinking the same amount as other people around me. I always went to class. I got straight A's. I never had a problem at work. I had no family history of alcoholism or substance dependence. I didn't look like someone with an addiction to alcohol. 
And yet here I was sitting in a 12-step meeting with people who were talking about things that I could relate to. After my first meeting, I went to meetings almost every day. I felt something there that I wanted. Um, people were real and told the truth, and they even laughed at the really shameful things. I got a sponsor. I started working the steps, and I stayed sober for three months. And then I got a call from my mom and that she was having a psychotic episode, and it instantly brought me back to the fear and insecurity of my childhood. I felt like I couldn't handle what was happening, and I wanted to make it go away, and drinking seemed like a solution. Also, I think by this point, I was looking for an excuse to drink, and this was a great one. I got really, really drunk. My roommate came home. I was sitting on the floor in the living room, and I started crying and telling her my life story and that I had a problem with drinking. She went to grab the beer out of my hand, and I grabbed onto it tighter and then wrapped my whole body in the fetal position around it. I blacked out that night. I woke up in different clothes than I had on when I started drinking. My contacts were on the ground. I discovered that I'd went to the bathroom on my bedroom floor. It's still a hard night for me to talk about because I vividly remember how much pain I was in. This solidified for me again that I had a problem. But I also very much felt like if anyone was going through what I was going through, they would drink too. Or if you had the life that I had, you wouldn't blame me for drinking. I couldn't fully take responsibility that these were the choices that I was making. I continued in the 12-step community, got a sponsor, worked the steps, went to meetings multiple times a week, had a service position, chaired a meeting every week. I went to conferences. I was heavily, heavily involved in the program. I moved to a teeny town with a population of 7,000 people, one month sober, and I got connected there, even though I was more afraid of running into people that I knew and worrying about how that would impact my job and my private life in this town. The meetings were literally all men, most of them in their 70s, and chain-smoking through the meetings, but I was committed to making it work this time. I stayed sober for two years, and I was happy. Alcohol was a non-issue. I didn't even have to think about not drinking. I felt pretty secure in myself, even though I still had a lot of anxiety, and the hair pulling was still definitely going on, but it'd go up and down. But I was pretty good, although I will say I still really questioned deep down whether I really was an alcoholic. Something in me just didn't want to accept that. After two years of going to meetings three or four times a week, I found myself pulling back. It didn't feel like it was fitting me anymore. I wasn't feeling free anymore when I went. Instead, I was feeling pulled back into revisiting this thing that wasn't a part of my life anymore. I was also feeling like I was in a part of my recovery where it was time to really listen to myself and honor my own direction, and this was dramatically clashing with my sponsor at the time. After my two-year anniversary, I decided to leave the program. I had no intention of drinking, and I was not leaving so I could drink. But I started having thoughts very quickly of, I've been sober for two years. What if I'm fine now? What if I, what if I didn't have a problem? What if I can moderate now the way I wanted to before? I had this fantasy of sitting on my back porch in the sun, reading a book, and sipping a drink. I could do that. I didn't feel like I was running from anything or self-medicating anything, so I decided to try it. I felt all the butterflies and the anticipation as I walked into the liquor store for the first time. 
It felt like it did in the very beginning. Everything was opened up to me again, and I couldn't wait. I felt like a kid in a candy store with their whole allowance. And once again, it started out super slow and moderate. I made another rule, no drinking when you're sad or depressed or anxious or stressed. Basically, you only get a drink when you're happy. It seemed brilliant at the time until I remembered I was anxious and stressed all the time. Then my family discovered that my brother had a severe drug addiction. He was suicidal and living in the woods in my hometown. And then my mom had brain surgery and a brain aneurysm and lost all of her short-term memory. She was 62, and I had to put her in a nursing home. Even though I lived in a different state, I was her primary caretaker to manage her finances, doctor's appointments, everything that was going on for her. I took her calls up to 10 times a day with her asking me over and over again where she was, why she was there, what happened, telling the story over and over and over. It was exhausting, and it was so painful. When I went to visit her, I carried airplane bottles of liquor in my purse for when I just couldn't handle it anymore. And again, I'd get hammered in the evenings. And through all of this, I had a very stressful job where I was working with people going through their own struggles, and I was feeling like a fraud. But I would be trying to help somebody else when I couldn't help myself or my family. And I want to be careful to say that none of this made me drink or made me have an addiction to alcohol. I'm at a place now that I can take responsibility that these are the choices that I make. No matter what was going on, I would have found a reason to drink because I wanted to drink. My drinking was heavy but boring. I'd come home from work. I'd open the bottle of wine immediately, sit down on the couch and watch TV and start drinking and start texting. I had a habit of becoming very emotional when I got drunk, and I'd start pouring out my life story to people through texts and tears. I started having night sweats regularly. I blacked out again. I started craving that first drink earlier and earlier. There were days I'd go to work, and I'd think, just get through the day, and you can come home and drink. But again, I never drank at work. I never drank uh, before work. I never had any problems at work because of my drinking or being hungover. I still never got a DUI. No one knew the amounts I was drinking. I had a boyfriend at the time, and I would drink a glass of wine before he came over. And that way, when I poured myself one when he was there, it looked like my first. Or I'd go into the kitchen and swig straight from any bottle I had available so he couldn't see. Or I'd wait for him to go to the bathroom and slam whatever was in my glass and then fill it back up to that amount again before he got out. Or I'd drink before going over to his house. I could walk over to his house from mine, and then I would look like I was just having my first drink at his house. There was so much secrecy and so much shame, but I felt like I needed it. I needed the alcohol. I needed to be okay. I was fine as long as I got a drink. I went back to therapy for severe anxiety, but, this, but I was really quick to tell her that I drank a lot, but I didn't have a problem. On New Year's Eve of this year, I went to a bar with my boyfriend, and I got wasted. I made a complete fool of myself in front of his coworkers. I flirted with another guy to get a cigarette off of him, and I blacked out. I woke up the next morning not knowing what happened after I got home. I was not a regular blackout drinker, so this really told me that I had to stop. And I really, really did try to stop at that point. I gave it my all but I could only make it about two weeks and I'd get wasted again. 
had so much shame about my drinking and lying and my behavior when I was drunk, all of it. And I still worked in a job where I was trying to help other people and feeling like a fraud every single day. I was depressed and I was anxious and I was waking up at night drenched in sweat and waking myself up by pulling out my hair in my sleep. I kept trying and I kept failing and I was stuck and I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to go back to 12-step meetings for personal reasons, but I knew I needed to do something. I started listening to recovery podcasts and found out about Hip Sobriety School run by Holly Whitaker. Um, It was expensive, but she said that I could learn to live in such a way that I no longer found it necessary to drink. It also gave me the opportunity to build community with others going through the program, which has been a major lifesaver for me and something I was really missing. I needed that place where I could be around others and tell the truth again. I had so much shame, and I was too scared to tell anyone. I listened to a ton of the bubble hour. I remember my first three episodes I listened to were three women that had a history of eating disorders and that drank like I did. Nothing dramatic happened because of their drinking, but they also knew it was a major problem and they had to stop. I always felt like food was my first addiction or problem, and I only took up alcohol when food wasn't an option anymore. And obviously that was just another excuse I was using, but to hear that this was the case for other people really helped me. In Hip Sobriety School, Holly does a fantastic job teaching about the brain and addiction and how the midbrain and frontal cortex are impacted by alcohol, how neural pathways work and new ones are built. She taught me about how addiction doesn't just happen because you're prone to addiction, but because alcohol is an addictive substance. And if you put it, put enough of it in your body over enough time, it changes the way your brain and your body work and respond to it. This really, really helped me lessen some of the shame around the fact that I kept drinking even when I didn't want to. It wasn't because I was broken or not trying hard enough or I was just a screw-up. My body was doing what I taught it to do. She also worked with us on building new sober rituals in order to start making those new neural pathways. Sobriety changed for me from being trying to stay away from alcohol to trying to add good things into my life. It wasn't about hanging on for one more day. It was about creating something that I actually loved. Instead of coming home from work and immediately picking up a drink, I went to the gym or I did a yoga class. When I was drinking, I didn't care about cooking or eating anything that would nourish my body, so I started cooking real meals. I started telling my body that I was thankful for it. I meditated and took baths almost every night. I did puzzles and games on my iPad. I went to therapy. I learned again how to sit with really painful and uncomfortable feelings. I spent a lot of time on the secret Facebook group. Um, I took my dog for long walks while listening to podcasts. I bought 20 boxes of tea trying to become a tea drinker. I did discover a love for ginger beer, and I found for me I really need to have something to drink that I really like. And I started turning loud music on and having dance parties with my dog. I stopped answering the phone every time it rang. I hate talking on the phone, and after talking to people all day at work, I don't want to talk to people when I get home. And that might make me a terrible friend, but it also helps me take care of me. 
And I told the truth. I didn't say that I was thankful for not drinking because I wasn't. I was pissed and sad and ashamed, and I let myself express that, even when I felt like I should say something else. There have been a number of times that I haven't wanted to be sober. And before, I used to tell myself that if I don't want it, it won't stick, so I might as well drink. Now I just see it as wanting to drink but choosing not to. It doesn't have to be bigger than that. I also told the truth to myself. If I was angry, I let myself be angry instead of trying to make that go away. I also learned to ask myself what I needed. When I'm hurting or stressed or have too much going on, I ask what I want. Sometimes that's going to bed at 7. Sometimes that's just being angry. Sometimes it's wrapping myself up in a blanket and cuddling my dog and treating myself like I'm six. I started telling the absolute truth in therapy, and I started talking about the hair pulling for the first time. When I have really bad cravings, I cry or I yell or I go to yoga or I look at my dog's face. I tell someone every time. Holly has this saying that change is built in the burn. When it burns, we are burning in those new neural pathways and making them stronger. No part of me enjoys the burn, but I repeat this to myself that I'm getting stronger every time I don't drink. I'm not saying that taking baths and drinking tea made me sober, just like I'm not saying that my trauma or my job made me drink, but these things re-taught me how to care for myself, how to breathe and sit with my feelings, and how to actually want to care for myself. And it got me out of my routine. But most of all, I was just ready. I'm ready to come back to myself because even with all the crap that's happened and all the stuff that, I'm, that I've done, I choose to treat myself like I'm okay, like I'm worthy and lovable and enough just like I am, not because I feel it, but because it's the truth. I've been sober 103 days today, and I'll be honest, I don't feel like I'm totally on solid ground yet. I still feel different and wrong, like I don't fit sometimes. But I also have come to know that many of us feel that way. Glennon Doyle talks about being afraid and messy and complicated and showing up anyway, and that's how I do life now. Last week, I got to meet up with one of my hip sobriety girls face-to-face. We both almost canceled because we were so scared, but we showed up awkward and afraid and we laughed and talked about real life stuff. And I'll take that over drinking every time. I feel so underqualified to share my story. And when you invited me on the show, my first reaction was hell no. But then I started thinking about how I was always looking for that person who had my story. I needed to know that I wasn't alone and that I wasn't weird and different and wrong. I was just a person trying to find my own way. And then you shared your struggle with dermatillomania, and I think I held my breath the whole time. You mentioned that 25% of people with addiction struggle with body-focused repetitive behavior, and I had no idea. It really gave me a lot of hope that I'm not alone. Hearing you struggle through sharing your experience truly impacted me. So although it's terrifying for me to talk about, and I imagine people being terribly disgusted, I also want someone else to know that they're not alone. And that's my story. (laughs) Oh, Jessica, drop the mic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You you really, you did such a beautiful job reflecting on that and bringing forth 
you know, so many aspects of it. Um, I was writing questions as you talked and then you'd answer them later on. I'm like, Oh wait, mm-hmm. she's already figured this out. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, you ended up talking about OCD, about um, uh, yeah. trichotillomania and which is the big name for the behavior that you exhibit. And, right. um, and as listeners may have heard me talk about before, I exhibit a behavior called dermotillomania, which is picking at skin. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a really, really hard thing to talk about. It So let's talk about it quick and get it out of the way. Um, yeah, because, okay. as you said, you know, 25% of people that struggle with addiction have a body-focused repetitive behavior. And um, mm-hmm. that means that a lot of people listening um, – are affected by either one of these behaviors of both or something similar and also probably feel like they can't talk about it. And, mm-hmm. and for those of you listening who don't relate to this, um, I asked you to just open your heart a little bit and learn as we talk about it, because once you know it's there, you might start to see evidence of it in people around you because it's a very common self-soothing mechanism, particularly for those of us whose anxiety is based in repressed anger or has a faucet Mm -hmm. of repressed anger. And I guess my first question to you about this then is, like, do you see that connection between um, your hair pulling and self-soothing and anger? And what do you do instead now? Have you developed some new behavior pathways? Yeah, so um, I definitely see the connection between anxiety, the the hair pulling and the anxiety and the self-soothing. Um, it was actually hearing you talk about your story was the first time I heard the anger components connected to to these behaviors. So that's something that I still need to explore. Um, it's definitely possible. I know that anger is not an emotion that I'm really comfortable feeling or expressing. So I can see that there could possibly be a connection to that, but I, I haven't, you know, unpacked that for myself yet. Um, and honestly, I'm still really early in the process of, of just even talking about this. Like I said, I just shared with my therapist three weeks ago that I do this and I like shook and almost threw up just trying to talk about it. Um, And then it got kind of worse for me after I talked about it because I, I felt this surge of anxiety and also this vulnerability of it being out there and exposed. Um, And so I, so some of the things that I personally have tried is like having other um, soothing behaviors, um, rubbing lotion on my skin, doing something else that feels soothing. Um, it doesn't really feel like, to be honest, right now, but I, it, maybe it will in the pat in the in the future. I think also delaying it for me, like if I find myself. It's such an unconscious behavior that I do it without noticing it. And so when I do catch myself doing it, I will stop myself and then try to, uh, like, say, okay, I need I need to quit for five minutes. And if I want to do it again in five minutes, I can. 
but I'm just going to stop for these five minutes. And then by the time five minutes have passed, like I, I generally feel better. Um, so I've definitely used that. Um, and then just, like I said, just talking about it. I did share about it in my group with like my hip sobriety school group um, on Facebook. And um, I was really shocked to hear, you know, other people said, yeah, me too. Uh, Like that's something that I've really struggled with. And here's some of the things that I've tried. Um, So just um, knowing that getting it out of the secrecy and bringing it to a place where I can talk about it, I think is going to help, help it decrease. I'm really Sorry, I'm glad you said that. More. No, no, no. It, it's it takes time to get used to even talking about it. And um I think like what's interesting to me is some of the things that you said, um, particularly about stimulating your lip with it, like rubbing against your lip with mm-hmm. soothing. It just brought me back to when I was a child, I was a thumb sucker. Were you a thumb sucker as a child? I don't think so. I'm not sure I was, <laughs> I was a big time thumb sucker and I have this um, junior scientist theory that um, there's a correlation between thumb sucking and future addiction. But um, I, so I self-soothe with some, I had a blanket with satin on the edge and I would always rub it against my lip Mm. as I was sucking Mm -hmm. my thumb. And then my parents attempted to cure me of thumb sucking by taking away my blanket which was called the stinky Mm -hmm. pinky because I dragged it everywhere and that was very (laughs) traumatic and so then Mm -hmm. I discovered that my mom had this beautiful um, uh, uh, amber colored satin pillow on the sofa in the living room like like this is in the 60s Mm -hmm. 70s so everyone had like a Mm -hmm. living room with fancier furniture that you weren't allowed to go into Mm -hmm, and I would stick in there and suck my thumb and rub this fancy pillow against my lip. And of course, I mean, I was little, so I got slobber all over it. And you can imagine the kind of trouble that I got in for slobbering on the good pillow. (laughs) Not to mention hiding and sucking my thumb. And I'm like, oh my God, a little future addict was born. Like I was, I was playing whack-a-mole, you know? And anyway, um, I can well, tell thank you, you that. for saying that because I yeah. I've never heard anybody share specifically about the lip thing, and so I mean it, it's so embarrassing to talk about. Like, why would you do that? But but it, yeah. So thank you for for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, you and I are not the only ones. If you look at little kids that some thumbs, they will often either use their index to stimulate their lip while they're sucking mm. their thumb or have a blanket or a toy or something like those two mm. things often really go together so for me my um, my uh, dermatillomania really started like I started well I, even as a kid I would scratch at my legs and I always had like scabby ankles and mm. I would say they were mosquito bites but after a while I started to notice that you know those got the wrong kind of attention and maybe as I started to want to be more appealing to boys I didn't want my legs to be gross and that's when Mm -hmm. I really started picking at my scalp because it was hidden and I think you know the thing with you know you're pulling your hair not your eyelashes not your eyebrows because it's hidden Mm -hmm. and so there's an aspect of it that's like shame-based and and trying to hide um, because you're you know you're picking a a non-conspicuous spot and I can also tell you I have received uh, letters from listeners 
who pick at their pubic hair because Mm -hmm. it's considered inconspicuous and they've developed infections and really Mm -hmm. uncomfortable lesions and stuff because of picking at this. So listeners, I'm sorry if this is too much information, but I think it all ties into all these shame-based self-soothing things we do and how far we will go to the point of self-harm to try And that's no different than drinking. When we drink to the point of self-harm, that is no different than physically harming ourselves. And Mm -hmm. same with, um, you know, eating disorders, whether it's that we're starving ourselves or that we're purging, overeating and then purging or punishing ourselves in some other physical way. Um, uh, These two OCD behaviors are really just a mild form of self-harm, and it's not that different than cutting um, someone that's right. cutting is trying to release that little bit of endorphin. So these things are all dots that are related. Right. And I, I really, it's a, it's a relief to me to be able to talk about them because those of us who have spent a lifetime not only hiding it, but pretending it isn't real. I mean, you kind of numb out mm-hmm. when you're doing it. So then you can just sort of like, you know, shake it off and pretend it didn't happen because no one saw and right, and it's so shameful that you just so kind of shameful. like don't yeah. you don't think about it. You don't allow yourself to go there. Like exactly, yeah. and then as codependent people that are so focused on what other people think, we think no one saw because we forget that we saw, and we don't consider mm. ourselves an important person. So I care. I'm learning not to, but I mean, those of us that feel that way believe that something is only real if someone else witnesses it or participates in it. And we have this Mm. amazing capacity to pretend that things didn't happen. And um, uh, I just, now I'm taking over (laughs) the interview. No, no, I really appreciate it. it. So, yes, and so, but let's talk for a minute about how to heal it because you've, you know, you're just learning about it. And so your recovery journey, you're like peeling the layers off an onion. You've, you've dealt with some of your childhood trauma and eating disorders and, and then in address, in addressing your um, alcohol addiction, you know, that layer of the onion comes off and now, Oh, look what's underneath that. Right. OCD behavior and what's underneath that. And I mean, it's, that is and a it's healing really purpose. hard to not feel like, like, God, maybe I just am a screw up. Like maybe, you know, maybe there just is something fundamentally wrong with me. And I think that that's why sharing our story and hearing other stories has been so helpful for me. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not, I guess I'm not like a complete freak. I guess that, you You're know, not. there are people that, um, that can relate that have been through this. Honestly, I think if anything, when we start sharing our stories, it makes us realize that when we have those me too moments or when other people say, oh yeah, I do that, we realize, oh, I'm not a freak. I am doing what normally happens when you have a problem and no one helps you with it or you don't allow people to help you with it. And so Mm -hmm. you start trying to fix it yourself. So the things we did as children 
Um, mm. I mean, and especially my gosh, you were handed a tough hand as a kid. So you you learned how to survive. That shows your resilience. Right. And as a kid, yeah. you didn't know better. So you did like the very predictable, maladaptive coping skills that got you through that moment and then more right. over time. But that doesn't make you freak. That makes you 100% normal. And yeah. <laughs> that's like, and that doesn't mean I'm also doing it. It means, oh, okay, there's nothing wrong with this for doing that's kind of like what happens when they're just looking to heal on their own. It's the same that if you don't set a broken bone, your leg is going to heal, you know, mm-hmm. with a weird mm-hmm. angle in it. But right. um, now we can go back and repair that and help heal it properly. And that means you have to go right back to the wound. You know, a broken bone that mm-hmm. heals wrong has to be rebroken and reset. And mm-hmm. that's scary. But the outcome is so much better and it's like essential if you want change. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing you're doing and, um, and it takes patience, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. Find that you're now, instead of saying, I want the quick fix, you know, just understanding that this took 30 plus years to get to this point it's not going to be fixed overnight, right? Right. Um, right. So are you yeah. finding in some ways the process is enjoyable now in a way that it wasn't previously? I mean, you had two years of sobriety and you enjoyed portions of it, but what's different right. this time? Um, yeah, I definitely thought about that. What is different? Um in those two years of sobriety, by the by the end of the two years, I like I said, alcohol was a non-issue. I good, I felt happy, um, but I don't remember how long it took me in the process. Like I, I have no idea at what point that shift happened, and so I've been a little bit impatient this time. Like, okay, I'm ready for it to hit. Where's the like joy in this? Um, and it is getting a lot easier, like all of that work that I've done of like building these new habits and new rituals and new self-care ways um, has has become my new normal. Like I come home from work and I don't, like my first thought is not like to drink. My first thought is to take my dog out or, um, you know, talk to my best friends. Um, so that's really nice to kind of reflect on and and realize that it's getting a lot easier. Um, The cravings still definitely hit um, and those are hard, but I'm, I, I think that like as cliche, it sounds like every time you say no to it, it becomes easier the next time. Um, And I've really found that that's true for me. Um, And I think most of all, like, because I'm not, continuing to add shame to this ball of shame that I already have. Um, Like I'm not, I'm not making it worse. Like I'm starting to like do things to care for myself. And, and then I'm starting to feel like I'm able to be cared for, you know, like I'm, I'm doing the things to achieve how I want to feel. Um, And I'm not doing the things to run away from, what I don't want to feel, which is adding more shame um, and needing me to run away more. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. I love that you 
point out that every time you don't give in to the urge, it gets easier next time because you develop yeah. a new tool for, okay, what do I do when I feel this way? And this, this yeah. brings me to another question that I wanted to ask you um, about relapse. So you had three months sobriety and then you relapsed in kind of a knee jerk way when, you know, your mom um, was yeah. in crisis. And, um, you know, I think a lot of us early on, especially, we don't quite have that we don't drink no matter what state of mind we sort of have okay I'm doing this but there's some conditions that would permit me to drink <laughs> like I think <laughs> whether people whether we know it or not like we might have this list of things of you know if I get diagnosed with cancer if my husband cheats on yeah. me if one of my kids gets sick like we sort of have this yeah. like subcategory of the worst things that those are excuses to drink and when you really dig into sobriety and say I'm not going to drink no matter what like there's, I, I need to be sober through all of those bad things and I'll do yeah. better because of it. So, uh, you know, I can see how your first relapse happened because it was so early on that you maybe hadn't really achieved that awakening and maybe didn't have better tools to deal with that crisis. But your second yeah. relapse after, you know, a couple of years of sobriety and high level engagement in the in the program, as you mm-hmm. talked about that, I could really, as a listener, I could really hear how that relapse was slower coming. And mm. it, there's like, th- we have other shows about relapse and we talk about how there's 11 stages of relapse and it starts mm. with some really like, starts with a little rebellion or a little bit of like loosening yeah. of other rules. And, and you don't know mm-hmm. it by little by little, you're inching towards relapse. And by the time relapse, by the time you take that drink, make that decision to to moderate or, you know, it wasn't that bad. You've actually been working on it for a long time. So having said that, what are some of the red flags that you see looking back on the period that led up to that relapse? Mm. Well, so I have a few things to say about that, but I, so I was always that person that I drank and then I, the next morning I would say, I am never going to drink again. Like, I, this is my last day one, and it's never going to happen again. And uh, and then I would drink again, and then I would feel like crap, like a total screw-up. And then that would lead me to drink again. And so I stopped doing that. I had to just stop. Like, I had to stop saying I'm never going to drink again and say I'm not going to drink right now. And so I think there is something to the 12-step saying of, like, um, just for the next 24 hours, um, just for today. That's how Mm -hmm. I have to do it because Mm -hmm. I, like, my mind can just really work things for me if I get too far ahead of myself. Um, But for me, I know that I'm really vulnerable when um, something's happening in my family, like my – I think for a lot of us, our families are our biggest triggers. Um, And so that's where I have to really um, make sure that, like, I've really tried to find self-care practices that work for me. And one of them is going to therapy, like having that place where where I get to just, like, spew everything. Um, And... And changing the way that I'm talking to myself is also a self-care practice that I have developed. Um, Just being kinder to myself, as hard as that is. Um, 
relying on other people and also that piece of like not saying what I think I should say, but just saying the truth of how I really feel. Like that's been a really big thing for me. Um, so you asked what my warning signs are. So um, things with my family for sure. Um, when I get really tired um, and just like I feel like I'm giving and giving and giving and I'm feeling resentful that I'm not getting anything back, like that's a time where I have to stop and, and figure something else out. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I feel like, you know, at 103 days, I feel like I could still relapse at any point, but I'm choosing today that I'm not mm-hmm. going to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's all I can do. I don't I, that that's it because I've tried, I've tried it other ways and it doesn't work for me. So I don't know. I also no, have to see relapse as like something as like a, it's part of, it's been part of my journey. It's been part of what I needed to go through to get to today. So I wish that I didn't have to do that. I wish that I wouldn't have relapsed so many times, but it is what it is. And like when we stop any other behavior, like when we stop, um, I don't know, anything else, we don't count days usually. Like we don't. So mm-hmm. for me, it like alcohol is just such a weird thing that I, and I put so much pressure on myself of like, I'm never drinking again. And it just didn't work for me to do it that way. You know, I think that's the point because I do sometimes think that that is way overemphasized in this discussion. And, you know, it's rooted in one program in particular that places, you know, a lot of recognition on time. And that can be a motivator. I mean, for me, it was a motivator. Yeah. Um, But it isn't always. And like you say, it's not like people count in the same way how long it's been since they had a cigarette or, or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a chocolate bar or whatever. Um, right. We just know that, right. you know, today I'm doing the right thing. And even just for today, man, 24 hours can be a really long time when you're struggling. Like I remember um, in my first few months, I remember feeling like I had a toddler that lived in my head that just mm-hmm. kept saying, can I have a drink now? Now can I have a yeah. drink? Come on now. And then I would just get it calmed down. And two seconds later, now? Can I now? Now? Yeah. Now? Are we there yet? Right. Are we there yet? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I just had to really take this patient, loving tone with myself that didn't come naturally. And, um, I mean, it came naturally for me with my children. And I almost had to treat that voice like it was one of my kids. Instead of mm-hmm. being mad at myself and thinking, what's wrong with me? I'm so un- undisciplined of just knowing that, like, well, it goes back to what you said you learned in um, Holly Whitaker's program, uh, Hip Sobriety, is that mm-hmm. our brain is doing what we taught it to do. And yeah. after a while of constant, you know, it's if you rang a bell every time. I don't know, like that you ate a cookie, well, you would really start to, every time you heard a bell, your mouth would start to water. I mean, that's have all the dogs, right? And Yeah, classical it, conditioning. The exact same thing happens to our brain. Like we train ourselves. And over time, we honestly cannot contemplate any other means of comfort, celebration, commiseration, <laughs> any Asian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
and yeah, and like those, technically, like, like the only like we're not getting the same hits uh, of these other things at first. The yeah. other like self care practices that we're practicing like do not feel as good and fulfilling to us as first That's right. at first as alcohol did because of the way the brain changes. So it takes time. But- it does start to come back too because even though our brain doesn't call out for those comforts, if we engage in them, they do still have a pleasurable effect. So like something as simple, and this sounds ridiculous. I would not have wanted to hear this when I was drinking, but taking a deep breath or breathing deep for a few seconds. I mean, it sounds so dumb and so basic and like, don't Mm -hmm. even bother me with that. (laughs) But honestly, like you, when you're not clouded by alcohol, you can start to actually feel the enjoyment in a glass of cool water or Mm. touching your toes, for God's sake. Like when's the last time a lot of us touched your toes? That feels great. Um, But that just seems oversimplified. And so as you get into, you know, the day by day or the minute by minute, yeah, sometimes you're just like just soothing that voice again and again and again. But mm-hmm. it does get easier. and It and does. It passes. really does get easier. Yeah. So we, our hour is over now already. And um, yeah. I told you it would go quickly. So I guess yes. the last question um, I want to ask you, and have you sort of leave our listeners with is that you mentioned that your job involves helping other people. And mm-hmm. I guess in a twofold question, I just want to ask like, how does sobriety affect your ability to give? And secondly, mm-hmm. what words of encouragement do you have in closing for our listeners? Hmm. Well, I think so to answer the first question, how sobriety helps me be able to give like we can't give from an empty well we've all heard that um so uh and then i i think you know when i'm always hung over like it's really hard to be present it's really hard to want to help other people um i can fall under into feeling resentful that i have to help other people all the time um, like I'm naturally a very giving and caring person, um, but I I get really lightly about it um, if I'm not taking care of myself. And so, uh, and then also like feeling like I'm doing all of this hard work and I am staying sober even when it sucks and it burns and it's hurting me. I feel like I do have something to give. I have something to offer now. Um so that's that's what helps. And then what I would tell others, um, I think I would say, like, your journey is exactly the way that it needed to be. And you are exactly okay and worthy as you are today, whether you're drunk, whether you're sober for 50 years. Um, but feeling getting sober stopping the drinking stopping doing all of those behaviors that we do when we drink it's so much easier to connect to that place of worthiness um and it's okay to feel like like you're a complete screw up and like you don't have it together and you can still show up like i would welcome that i 
am so much more willing to be around people that like don't have it together than the people that act like they do. And just keep keep trying, like keep keep going. Like your journey is exactly the way that it needs to be. That's what I would say. Thank you so much. Thank um, you. It's been an honor. It's been really a healing process for me to be able to share this. So thank you so much. Oh, I, it's uh, um, it's my pleasure. And I'm just, as always, blown away by the stories that we tell each other and the lessons that we have for each other. So um, thank you for trusting me and the listeners of the Bubble Hour with your story and, and know that you've helped a lot of people today. Thank you. And listeners, if you would like to reach out to Jessica and express your gratitude for her honesty and vulnerability today or um, get a message to her or to me, you can write to thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will make sure to pass on your comment or reply to it. And um, you can read my story at unpickledblog.com And you will find us on iTunes. And if you are listening through iTunes, please do take a moment to rate our show. And um, that really helps other people find us. So just by taking a minute to do that, you are doing an act of service for others as well. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. And until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We think you're strong Just want to